With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. Everything is a story. Like if you're making a sale, it's a story. If you're if you're introducing yourself to people, it's a story. Interweaving the funny is part of life, but how do you do it professionally? Because it's hard. It's all tools, right? It's all tools. It's like when I'm in a club, I want that crowd to have great night. And if anybody's been having a shit day, I want them to laugh hard, walk out of here feeling like, I'm glad I went to a comedy show. That's my job. I will tell you there were nights that I had bombed and bombing when you are talking about stuff so personal to you is like a unique form of loneliness that I did not know existed before that. Like bombing is horrible for anybody on any night, but bombing when you're opening up about some of the most personal stuff you've ever talked about, it's just truly isolating. There were times where I not just bombed, but where the whole room got pissed or sad, and I realized, oh, I just totally missed the mark. Multiple times where people walked out, um, and how would you, and given that you're a depressed and anxious kind oh, of person, yeah. as you admit, yeah, uh, how would now you're throwing yourself into a situation that you know destroys the emotional resilience yes. of comedians yes. or even you know positive people? Yeah. How did you personally deal with it? <laughs> okay, well, I am so. I always say I'm so excited. Chris Gethard, welcome to the James Altucher Show podcast. Thanks so much. Yeah, pleasure to be here. I'm I'm specifically making the most boring possible intro, just saying hello. No, I see. I'm in my head a little bit because you said I always said I'm so excited, and I thought you were going to replace it with another adjective, but you just skipped right to my name. So well, it makes me feel like you're not excited. <laughs> that's funny. I'm happy you're here. I'm glad finally the schedule yeah. put it all together. And you've done amazing artistic things in many different areas, and I'm a fan of all of it. And you've also had some significant failures and and comebacks from it, so we'll (laughs) we'll talk about that. (laughs) But you're obviously a big stand-up comedian. You had a special, I I guess it was about a year or so ago, Career Suicide on HBO. Mm -hmm. Uh, You wrote a book, Lose Well, by Chris Gethard, by you. You had a TV show for many seasons, The Chris Gethard Show. It was on Comedy Central. It was originally public access, but then Will Ferrell and Adam McKay picked it up. Uh, then after True TV, was it on another? Oh, it was on Fusion? It was on Fusion first, then True TV is where it wrapped up. Okay. Kind of felt like it wasn't going to go any further, and it wasn't working out great there, so it seemed like it was time to wrap it up. But, you know, you were doing it for a long time. Oh, yeah. And so sometimes after doing things for a long time, even if it's still going well— if you don't feel that sense of like this is getting better and better in this exponential way, it's 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 reasonable to give up. Like, and you talk about oh, this 100%. in your book. When when do you when should you quit something? Yeah, yeah. And I had that instinct. I think I think in the book I say you got to either right now the second you're having that thought or put the thought way out of your head because yeah. you can't operate with that looming over you. And it's funny with the TV show. I think we all kind of realized, yeah, it's. Uh, it's okay if it goes away. It was still really fun when it was fun, and then the second the network was a pain in the ass, we were like, "This is why are we still doing this?" Like, 
this is an idea that, you know, I think a lot of us who had worked on the show were working on it for about nine years. Nine years is a long time. And it the, is. And the, you the change for- a lot in nine years. But the format of the show, if I remember correctly, didn't really change all that much. Like, you kept the format, which is good. That's what, that's yeah. what shows do, is you pretty much keep the format so people know the, the brand from the format, from you, from everything. And... Again, it could be you could keep doing it for another twenty years, but I, I love that quote from the book, and I love what you just said. But the, the quote from the book specifically is: when you have that thought of quitting, you either quit this second or don't quit at all. Just keep going. Right. And right. then you know, I think that's a great. A lot of people ask me, "Oh, when should I give up on writing this book, or when should I give up on this business I'm I'm starting?" And I think. Uh, I think that is a good answer. But my modification rule is when you don't feel that overall forward momentum happening in your brain, in your heart. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think the the, the thing that I'm really not into, um, which I think I make clear in the book, is this idea of like, well, I'm going to quit in a year or I'm going to quit in six months if X, Y, and Z doesn't happen. It's like, that's just not that's just not at all how any of this works. Like there's no, you can't set an arbitrary deadline on the dam breaking. That's not how dams break. It's like and a, also a random thing. Then you're dependent too much on other people, on other random people's decisions. Yeah. Because what is X, Y, Z? If it's a company, it's someone's buying the company. If it's a book, it's either people buying the book or a publisher publishing the book. If it's a TV show, it's uh, a lot more people watching it. Yeah. Or, or ABC makes it, you know the late night show for ABC. So you're, you you can't latch your success or hook your success to someone else's boat. Yeah, I feel like for a lot of comedians too, it's like if I don't get an agent by the end of this year, and it's like, well, the believe, they'll come find you when they really, when they can make money off you. Like if they that's what they that's how they pay their rent. So. They'll be here. They'll be here. You just go get good. You got to go get good at what you do. And then someone will say, I can commodify that. And then you'll be set with that. But don't, I, I think that people put these like these deadlines or these arbitrary, um, arbitrary goals that they make very necessary in their minds. And it creates these sort of storm clouds that make creativity completely unfun. It's well, a shame. But let's go all the way back to the beginning of your career when mm-hmm. you got some very good advice uh, from, I believe it was your your therapist. Yeah. Uh, and it reminds me of uh, advice that, or not advice, but it was something Jim Norton told me on the podcast. And Jim and I went to from elementary school through high school together. Oh, wow. So you're a Jersey guy. Yeah, yeah. Nice, me too. Uh, yeah, you're Essex County, right? Yeah, uh, West Orange. Uh, and... Jim Jim basically told me he had nothing to fall back on. Um, he started his c- comedy, and at the same time, he was like driving a tractor trailer on a construction site. So this is not a career that he was planning on doing. <laughs> and um, and your um, therapist gave you the same advice, like and you uh, say, get rid of all of your non-comedy jobs, so you have nothing to fall back on. And you were and you were like. But I, I'm writing these articles. I'm doing this. I got to pay the rent. I got. I, I have all these other income streams. And this guy said, uh, "Get rid of it all." And yeah. you did. And it was hard. That you make it hard horrible, for yourself. Horrible. But she was right. She, uh, she really, 
she, she the way she phrased it was give yourself no other option. And she saw when I started with her in 2007, I was, I was, I look back and I, I regret it so much because I was 27 years old. I'm like in the prime of my life. I'm having fun. I'm a comedian in New York City, but I had all these looming thoughts that it wasn't happening in time and all my other friends were getting jobs and why isn't it happening for me? And she was the one who basically said at some point you got to go all in. You have to try. And if, if, if you can't, if you can't pay rent doing comedy, then sorry, you don't get to do it at this level. Like you then have to readjust and decide if it's going to be a hobby or if you want to do it anymore, but it's okay to fail. And she, it was totally true. I have found that that middle ground that we all wind up in where it's like, I got enough stuff going on to eke it out maybe, but not enough stuff to really feel secure in this. That is such a deadly mental zone where you, uh, I think are just so prone to overthinking everything and allowing everything to fester into anxiety. So very thankful for her advice, although it did get quite scary financially. Because you did, at one point, hit zero. I did. I, I kept, uh, I kept a, about, I think it was about two grand right. in a you bank account. Right, you said Yeah. And uh, I knew, I was like, at that point, my rent was about seven fifty a month. I was living in Woodside with roommate. And uh, I was like, okay, seven fifty, eight hundred bucks a month for rent. Then there will be bills and food, and I'll have a tiny bit of breathing room to just try to rekindle some other ways to make money. And I told myself, if it gets to the point where I need to bust into that two grand, that's the marker that I, I didn't have it. And I made it work for about a year. I was picking up little odd jobs and strange gigs, and not all of them were things that you know I was necessarily proud of, but it was like, okay, I'm finding these weird little gigs. And, and, and those are the ways you're going to get better. Oh, so if yeah. you weren't forcing yourself to get on stage a little bit more, like you could have said before, well, I have a deadline tomorrow on the writing. I'm not going to go on stage tonight. But it's getting on the stage that forces you to get better. Mm-hmm. And that's it's not just that you were surviving financially for a year and then blah, blah, blah happens. It's like also during that year, you're forced to get better in a way that you wouldn't otherwise have been forced to get better. Yeah, and I I think it's important too. You get better at your craft. You get better at, like, I better get as good as I can and work as hard as I can. But you also get better at things like not being too bashful to ask for stuff or Mm -hmm. not, you know, not, not, passing it on, on an opportunity because your self-doubt is messing with you on that particular day. You learn to kind of just dive into the deep end over and over again because it's like, yeah, if I, don't, if I don't grab this bull by the horns and start to try to make these opportunities happen for myself, then they don't happen and then I starve. So I think like craft-wise, absolutely you get better, but also just getting a thick skin and learning how to be a little bit more unapologetic in wanting things to happen and making things happen is also a real skill. When you when you sort of light a fire under yourself and uh, create some panic that it's time to go all in or it's time to walk away, I think I think there's a lot of aspects that that really round out that can help you in a career. Right. There's that saying which was it necessity is the mother of invention. Yes. Um I want to actually get back to that in one second because I'm fascinated by this. But the reason I I originally thought of you is, you know, we had Gary Goldman on the podcast. The best. Uh, a few weeks ago talking specifically about his Goldman tips of, of comedy. But it also applies, I feel, to writing and career and life in general. And you wrote an article 
on your tips on comedy, and you gave total deference to Gary's tips, which Gary retweeted your your comments and, and retweeted this article, which is how I found it. And you give your tips, and I found, again, this totally applies not just to comedy, but to career and life and success in general. So I want to go over them eventually, sure. but I want to I want to get back to this though, like in this in this period when you said you you had to be you know, get better at asking for things. I think this is a hard thing for people. Like, you know, when you're in comedy or in many careers, you have to go to say the booker of a comedy club who may or may not know you. And you have to say, can I do a spot or a set of spots? Just like someone might have to, is afraid to ask for a promotion or a salary increase or, you know, someone to speak at their conference or I don't yeah. know, whatever. Uh, so like, how do you get over that uh, fear and, and what's an appropriate way to do it and an inappropriate way to do it? Because if you just write like, hey, I'm the best, you should ask me on, that's inappropriate. Yeah, everyone will roll their eyes at it. I mean, I've never been good at it because I'm like a, you know, anxiety riddled, you know, low self-esteem Irish Catholic. Like I've there's a lot of boxes I check as far as being too bashful to ask for stuff. So I've just found, it's it's one of these weird things where you you got to realize like, I feel like I'm a pretty pretty humble person and a pretty realistic person. And I have found over and over again in my life that um, when you, if you are just kind of prioritize being a good person, like generally even you at your most aggressive or you at your most off-putting, you're going to be okay because there's other people in the world who don't care about being good people or being respectful people. So you can just land in that sweet spot. I, I, I think I have often found, I have sat, there's so many times where I felt dumb to not ask for things ahead of time. Like um, I, didn't, I didn't ask for an audition at the cellar until my HBO special had already aired. And then when I got there, people were like, what are you talking about? Like you, you had an HBO special before you, and I was like, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't know why in my mind that was the way to do it. It's so backwards. Same thing with my first album. There was a, a record label that I really admired. And for years I was like, I'd really love to put my label out with them. And then I asked them, and they were like, yeah, of course, that would be awesome. And I realized- And that, this is called, this is my album? Yeah, my comedy album. And it's Don Giovanni Records, which a lot of my friends who are in the punk world have put their albums on. And they're great. And I, I really, really admire their label. But as soon as I asked the guy, he was like, oh, you would do a thing with us. That's awesome. Yeah, let's, I'm like, oh yeah, I sat and overthought that one for like two or three years. But l let me ask you this though, like what's the benefit of using an album when you could just upload to iTunes, you could upload to, you know, all the venues yourself and that's how distribution occurs. It's it, is really it benefit to an album right now? Well, it's really true. I mean, and even in the time since I put out my first album, I think that's changed more and more. Um, you know, now the biggest musicians in the world are launching themselves off of SoundCloud. It's all yeah. self-uploads. That is different than it was even, I put out probably my, my first album probably, what, six or seven years ago. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess the one thing I would say, there, there's a couple of things I would say is like one, for me, like I, I put mine out very intentionally on a, on a label that puts out a lot of bands I love, punk bands. I so was, there was like a brand love yeah. there that you felt wanted to be it just felt good for you and i think it sort of set up sent up a signal too of uh you know letting the audience know kind of where my priorities were at and where my um kind of ethics ethics were you know like i'm gonna go on a small punk label from new jersey um it just kind of i think reflects a lot of how i grew up and and where i grew up 
Um, the other thing too is vinyl. They press vinyl and then you can sell that on the road and people like having a collector's item that they can hold in their hands. There's a lot of people that buy the vinyl records even though they don't own a record player just because it's cool. Um, and, and you know, this, this segues into, you know, for your TV show, the Chris Gethard show, uh, you did it public access first, which I thought yeah. was a very like, I'll call it a, a, you chose yourself to have a TV show. You didn't wait for MTV oh, or Netflix to call you or CBS to call you. You just did the show. Yes. And, and it was the way you wanted to do it. And yes. it was, and like you say, it got, it was so good that eventually Will Farrell and Adam McKay come along and say, Hey, why don't we just make this for comedy central? Yeah. Well, yeah, we had a pilot at comedy central then it went to fusion. Then it went to true TV. So we got, we got interest from at least three networks putting money behind it on some level. But it would never have happened if you didn't just no do it yourself. No way. And and actually And you could do that yourself now on YouTube, on Amazon, uh, and a million places. There's so many ways. There's so many ways. And the world is shifting and it's happening fast. You know, I think the traditional industry still has a few things to it, such as like unions and health insurance and stuff like that. Those are certainly benefits, but there's no reason to not scrap it out and make it happen. I, I'm, a, I'm a living example of, I had been doing my show at the Upright Citizens Brigade and it would get all this buzz and press for being this like very experimental talk show. And then networks would bring me in for meetings and I could just feel them rolling their eyes. I could feel them bringing me in to be like, oh, you're like the underground New York alt comedy guy. And then I'd realize halfway through, oh, they they have no intention of buying this. They just kind of want to feel relevant and how, like, bringing me in. Like I represent something in their mind where they can feel good that they even brought me in, but it's just wasting two hours of my day because they have no authority or ability or even desire to buy this thing. So I was like, screw this. I'm going to go make it myself. And public access was the way to do that. And and what's, and, and again, I, I, I want to get to your, your great tips about comedy, which I also say is good for career life. But like, for a talk show, and then also I want to talk about career suicide, where you where you bare your soul and talk about depression and suicide and anxiety, and and it was an incredible special, such an important uh, special on HBO. I don't want to ignore that at all. That's actually a big thing I want to talk about. <laughs> but what what are the standard beats that where you can say this is a talk show, and then how did you experiment with those beats? Well, I really worshipped Letterman growing up, and then. Conan hit when I was in high school and that felt like the next sort of linear logical step in that Letterman tradition so I always liked the guys who were a little weird and and doing a little bit more almost uh not just sitting behind a desk yes but like Letterman and Conan was doing stuff on the street doing yes. you know getting a little bit more dangerous with the sketches and yes. so on well I, I think a lot about I, I've often said to my friends I think the funniest piece of comedy I've ever seen is the Conan remote piece where he takes Mr. T apple picking. I don't know if you've oh, ever I seen see that. I, I still stand by it. I, I watch it and I laugh every single time and I've seen it about 50 times. And I just thought Conan's remotes, the one where he went and did old timey baseball, the, you know, him decorating Andy Blitz's apartment, one of his writers. I, I just always thought the idea that he would kind of walk off the set into the real world and shine and, um, really make himself like part of the actual world that that always got me and then with letterman especially in his early days i always loved the stuff you know just him putting on a velcro suit and launching himself into a wall or you know him dropping 
10,000 rubber balls off the roof of his studio just to do it. I always thought that was like pretty badass and and pretty clearly um pretty clearly like a middle finger to the idea that this has like a set structure and it needs to be that. And I just really loved all that stuff those guys were doing and then I got to thinking too. I was like, you know, Letterman really cooled down with the weirdo stuff. He became more known for his interviews in his later days like Conan was transitioning over to the Tonight Show, and I think in that process he was like maybe pumping the brakes a little bit on the weird stuff. And I was like, man, I'm gonna really miss that. I want my show to be just that. I want my show to be an. Imagine if Letterman's whole show was just him putting on a suit covered in Alka Seltzer and diving into a dunk tank. Imagine if it was that for an hour, no monologue jokes, no. I really didn't like the idea of um, having to butter up celebrities. I feel like those interviews are so very, very visibly scripted at this point. I'm buttering up a celebrity. What are you talking nah. about? I mean, first of all, very, very extraordinarily low-level celebrity uh, and getting the Q rating is plummeting further and further with each passing week now that my TV shows up the air. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, like we're having a talk, and it's yeah. going in a million different directions, and pe- people can hear it genuine. I've been on those talk shows, and it's weird, and it's gross. They, some producer calls you the night before, and it's like, what about this? What about this? And you tell your stories, and then you show up the next day, and they're like, we liked this answer and this answer, but we want to trim the second half of this one. And they leave you an actual transcript of what they hope you say. And then the host asks you the questions that you know are coming. You give the answers that they've already given a thumbs up on, and you're sitting there, and you're pretending it's real. It's not real. It's well, what did so you think, weird. What did you think of that Seth Meyers episode with Jerry Seinfeld where Seinfeld basically says that? Like he says, so that he turns to the audience and says, this is what happens. But then he, and he describes <laughs> what you just said. And he says, but I'm not doing, I didn't do any of that. It's, I love that you would call it out because it's, very, it's a very strange thing to present to America and clearly reflective of something that's in the air right now that will be analyzed in future generations. I will say, Seth is one of the good ones. I've been on a bunch of the shows, and Seth is Seth is such a brilliant, quick, smart, funny guy. Um, what do you think of the Eric Andre show, which also takes an experimental turn on the traditional I Loved format? it. I loved it. And Eric is... Uh, I don't know Eric that well. Um, he was kind of heading to L.A. as I was coming up in New York. But we've run into each other at a bunch of festivals and stuff, and we have great mutual respect. It was definitely... I always felt like our shows were sort of uh, companion pieces in a way where his was definitely more of like a scripted commentary on the talk show. Mine was improvised and live. Um, Neither one's better or worse, but I I really like that. I I always felt like he was making some similar points. Um, And I I love that he's a madman. I know that I was always bummed because we could, we could never get a meeting at adult swim because they already had his show and they were like, we already have a weird anarchy-based talk show. So there was some bitterness there, but it all worked out in the end. It all worked out. So so then, um, you know, more more recently you did uh, the your HBO special, Career Suicide. And I think it was kind of eye-opening about, for many people, about what a comedy special could be because you opened up so much about... It, first off, several things. One is it wasn't boom, 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 like premise, punchline, premise, punchline, which a lot of comedy specials are. Second, you were telling... Story, so people got to see in a different oh storytelling style comedy, which is 
which is a style, but it's like you're telling a larger story where punchlines and and the fun, not even punchlines, but the funny is sort of interwoven through the story. Yeah. But the stories themselves were very real and very true to you and very personal. Like you were talking about depression, you know, suicidal thoughts, anxiety. Like what was what was your thought process behind making that? I mean, I know it started as a as an off Broadway show and then became like a comedy special. Um, and uh, what was the reaction afterwards? It's wild. It's been really wild. It, 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 the idea came up, um, you know, I'd, I'd been pretty open about that stuff in my life. On the public access show, I would, like, talk about being on medications. But and- I feel like a lot of comedians, just as a joke, I mean, I even saw it in the club down here last night. Somebody said, well, I guess Zoloft and alcohol don't mix. Yes. Like, people are kind of semi-open as a joke about it, but right. not like, you You were, like, slowing the pace down, you weren't doing the comedy cadence, no, of, was, but um, bump. Get gritty. Yeah, and, and you could were see just that like it was genuine to the audience. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I I would I was more in that sphere. I was probably like doing what you're describing, maybe just like ten percent more genuinely, but still sort of like, oh, the Wellbutrin ain't working today. And I wound up opening for a year for Mike Berbiglia. Who, when you talk about the storytelling right, style, he's the other guy I think of. Yeah, I mean, when you when you think of the storytelling style, he, I think he's clearly the person who kind of crushed that. Yeah, and what was his so, special? He had uh, Sleepwalk with Me, My Girlfriend's Boyfriend. But then he did a special about storytelling. Thank uh, God for jokes. Yeah, yeah. So I I opened for him when he was working on that show. Okay. And he and I have known each other for a long time, but he knew me more as like a UCB guy. And then he saw me do stand-up uh, at one point, and he was like, dude, you've gotten really good. Your stories are good. And I was like, thanks, man. And I was like, I just knew. I, I, I was 2014, so I'd been working a long time. Like how many years at that point were you doing stand-up? Well, I started doing like more storytelling stuff, but on storytelling shows around 2006, and then that converted slowly into stand-up. And I, I would say around like 2011, 12 is when I started really saying, like, I, I don't want to – the storytelling shows I think are really great, but they tend to be – very safe, artsy audiences that are willing to sit in silence for a very long time. Right, like you can't... I'm a comedian. I want to make sure it works with comedy crowds. So uh, that was probably around like, yeah, 2010, 11, 12 that I started really trying to gear up and go adjust the balance where it was just stand up as often as possible. But as you know, with that style, it very often means that you eat it hard. So, so, yeah, so... If you're doing a five minute set for Conan, for instance, mm-hmm. and you do a and you're starting to do stories, a you only have time for one story. If maybe, that, yeah, I have if bits that. that are seven, eight, nine minutes long. And if it if you're bombing in the middle of that, but you have to continue, you have to finish the story. You can't just say exactly. Forget that funny thing happened to me on the subway. You can't just switch. <laughs> and I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud that I I I, I could have floated around as a Brooklyn guy forever if I wanted to. And I have great respect for a lot of the Brooklyn comedians. They like certainly built the scene that I helped carry the torch on as far as like the experimental weirdo comedy in New York, but I also I was always inspired by Berbiglia, Mulaney. Um those are the two guys that I remember when I was coming up where I was like, "Man, they come and do shows with us at UCB when I was still a UCB guy." And it's like and then they'll run out to like 
Gowanus and do some show that Ira Glass is producing. And then they'll go by Caroline's later that night. And they can do it all in a night. They can go play to any crowd. And I always thought that was, that's one of the things I, I wrote in that list of rules was like, they've gone all city. Like they can go in any room. Right. And you mentioned this also in the book that basically. It has if, to work everywhere. If, if it doesn't work everywhere, it's not your aim. No. It'll never appear on a special. It has to work in New York. It has to work in St. Louis. It has to work on college campuses. If it doesn't work everywhere, then you haven't put in enough work or you're settling for the area that feels safe to you. And it's not, it's not, your, it's not in anybody's best interest so, for so you to feel safe. You contrast know? that a little with like Doug Stanhope, for instance, who decided at one point, I'm, not, I'm only going to do the crowd that likes me. So, so which I respect too. Like 100%. He, he, he said, I don't want to do comedy clubs. It's not for me. If they, if they don't know me, they're not going to get what I'm saying. And I have a very important, he, he, he has his message and he wants to convey it to the crowd that specifically selects him to listen to. Yeah. And I think there's, so his stuff won't work for every crowd. Not Yeah. And I mean, I've done his podcast three times and that crowd is amazing and insane and flips out. But I also think, you know, Doug's been working for years. Like Doug put it, Doug pounded the pavement as hard as anybody. Then you hit a point where you get to that and I think you earn it. But I think they're, excuse me, drinking Coke Zero, delicious Coke Zero, and I had to burp. Um, Podcast sponsored by Coke Zero. (laughs) How would I say it delicately without being too much of a shit talker? I would say that there are, just to be frank, like I think there are people who only want to play certain types of environments and they will claim that it's for artistic reasons, but they have not earned their stripes. Doug is someone who has worked for decades. He's earned his stripes. He's right. earned the right to do that. And I feel like that's that's also part of what it is to be a headliner of a certain capacity, right? Like when anybody, if you're going to see Kevin Hart or, or Jerry Seinfeld, it's because you're a fan of theirs, you know. But ninety nine percent of comedians are not that person who's attracting hundreds and hundreds of people to a room just for them. Um, but I think that there's clearly a comedy bubble. There's clearly a lot of romanticism around comedy the past decade. There's clearly a lot of like cultural think pieces where comedies become this weird weather vane for society and the news, and it makes it very easy to kind of hide in one corner. And I think there are probably too many comedians that hide out in one corner of the world and claim that it's for artistic integrity choices, but it's really just because they're scared. So give me a specific example. You don't have to name a person, but like what's sure a I, format that they're going for? I think that there's probably, I think that in New York, you see two big camps, I think. I think you'll see, you will see certain types of comedians that only do shows in places like Bushwick or Gowanus. And these are very like forward thinking artsy crowds. They probably are artists themselves or subscribe to the New Yorker. And, you know, this is grew out of the alt comedy movement and you can kind of do some weird bits and bring pop props and take your time or go out in a car- as a character and they'll roll with it. And I think there's a lot of alt comedians who would go, Oh man, the clubs are full of nothing but, you know, like uh, misogynists and that old school, uh, like leather jacket, like closed minded, almost sort of like men's rights vibe. And then I think on the other side of the coin, there are club comics who will sit there and go, oh, all the, 
all those artsy weirdo kids don't know how to make jokes. It's just gimmicks. It's just uh, image, like put on a weird outfit and, you know, start talking about gender fluidity. And I've seen com- I've seen those conversations happen on both sides. And the people who I think are the best do all those types of shows. They do every single one. And they happen to be the ones who talk the least shit because they know it's just about doing the work and getting the laugh wherever they can go. Well, it reminds me of another thing you say in your book, which is that you didn't want to just be funny. You wanted to be funny plus. Yeah. And the reason that quote, I think, resonates so well is because, again, it applies to anything. Like, imagine if you're going to start a business and let's say your business is going to be, oh, I'm going to provide... Uh, I'm going to find a bunch of drivers and provide free rides for people who need rides. And I'm going to make an app where they can find the cars where the drivers are ready to go. Yeah. Um, So obviously you can't compete with Uber. You have to be somehow in your your creativity here, you have to be Uber plus. You have to find an extra thing that you're going to offer. Yes. And, and, And I think this applies to everything. Like if you... You have to somehow go out on a limb and get out of a comfort zone to find that plus that that works that nobody else is doing. Yeah. And you know, I feel like with career suicide, even though you had you had your amazing influences, you had all your background, you still went in a direction with career suicide that was a little bit there was storytelling like, you know, Mike Birabiglia. It was talks about depression like, you know, Neil Brennan and some other comics. But you kind of you kind of combine all these styles and you go pretty dark and real with it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I Berbiglia challenged me. Berbiglia was like, I've heard you make some jokes about that stuff. We were on the road together, driving in the Midwest, and he was like, "What's the what's the darkest that stuff ever got?" In a real way, no jokes. And I told him a story that's in career suicide about a time that I intentionally crashed a car where I realized yeah. this accident was happening and I just kind of chose to not hit the brakes. And uh, I told him that story. And I, at that point, I'd probably told less than half a dozen people in my life that story. It was something that really scared me and that I felt a lot of shame over. And I told it to Mike. We had gotten so close that I trusted him. He just goes, dude, that's hilarious. You got to tell it on stage. And I was like, Mike, it's, it's time that I tried to kill myself. He's like... It's a funny story. And he, he said to me, he goes, you know, the thing that really motivated me was he said to me, he goes, you know, there aren't a lot of people who can tell the story you just told me and actually get the laughs you just got. And that's without you even like working on it. So, so let me ask you about that because it's a completely different mindset than comedy. So in comedy, you're thinking of, or you could correct me if I'm wrong, you're thinking of premise punchline. Or maybe yeah. you're thinking punchline, what's the premise? Right. You know, like, uh, why do they have the gaps on the subway? And then you have to think of, you know, either a punchline or a premise for it. And with this, but that takes five seconds to tell. Mm-hmm. With a story, you're probably used, even though you say you only told that story to a dozen people, when you tell that story, it's 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 a story that you're telling. It's not an act. And... And you're used to telling it and thinking about it. Maybe you've thought about it thousands of times for thousands of hours, and you're not really thinking of where do I slide the funny into this. So what what's the process by which you're taking a story and 
putting the the funny into this. And by the way, this is not just for uh, people who want to be funny storytellers. Everything is a story. Like if, you, if you're making a sale, it's a story. If you're if you're introducing yourself to people, it's a story. Like f- interweaving the funny is part of of life. But how do you do it professionally? Well, because it's hard. Like it I was, think if you're particularly if you're used to going up on stage and, yeah. and and feeling like oh my god the audience is silent I'm bombing. <laughs> how do you? How did you then take something that you know is going to be different than the average joke that you're used to and take that chance? Yeah. It was hard. It was really hard. It took a lot of work. I wanted to be as honest as possible. I felt like I had I had dealt with a lot. It really affected my life in a serious way. I did not want to undercut that. I was like, if I'm going to talk about this, I'm going to talk about it as real as I can to respect what I've been through and anyone else in the audience who maybe has been through it. Uh, and then the goal became, well, if I'm going to ask an audience to go with me on this stuff that might make them uncomfortable might make some people mad, might make some people feel like, oh, I thought I was coming to a comedy show and now I got to kind of look in the mirror about depression in a way I'm not ready to. It's like, if I'm going to ask that of the audience, I better make sure the funny parts are as funny as anything else I'm doing or else I'm just exploiting my own pain for whatever, money, attention, whatever it might be. But so, so let me let me ask you. I'm I'm yeah. sorry I always interrupt. Oh no, please! I'm, I'm a horrible. I'm interrupter. happy to roll with the punches. I feel like there's two ways you could approach that. One is to sit down and write it over and over and try to find the funny, or, or f- find the punchlines in there, or where you could exaggerate some stuff. Or you know you're a funny person. You've spent all these years at UCB. You were already doing stand up, going on stage, feeling the audience reactions at different points. You could sort of shift and turn and you know you know you're going to find yeah. the funny naturally. I did that one. I just went on stage over and over and over again and told this dark shit and uh I feel like you have to do it that way. Have to because it's more than more than most material I think that the audience's temperature is going to shift in ways you can't predict when you're talking about this stuff and uh I will tell you there were nights that I bombed and bombing when you are talking about stuff so personal to you is like a unique form of loneliness that I did not know existed before that. Like bombing is horrible for anybody on any night, but bombing when you're opening up about some of the most personal stuff you've ever talked about, it's just truly isolating. There were times where I not just bombed, but where the whole room got pissed or sad, and I realized, oh, I just totally missed the mark. Multiple times where people walked out. Um, and how would and given that. You're a depressed and anxious kind oh, of person, yeah. as you admit. Yeah. Uh, how would now you're throwing yourself into a situation that you know destroys the emotional uh, well resilience yes. of comedians yes. or even you know a positive people? Yeah. How did you personally deal with it? Well, here's what started to happen, and it's just the truth. I'm not trying to like legend build in any way, but I remember so distinctly realizing that. On the nights that I would bomb, there were always like, even in the midst of like this true visceral discomfort, there'd always be like three or four people laughing. And I could hear like, oh, they're actually laughing hard. What? That's a weird sensation I haven't experienced before of like, that point I'd probably been going on stage in New York for 15 years. I'm like, okay, I haven't experienced this before where everyone's uncomfortable except two or three people, but those two or three people are really into it. This is weird. And... What happened was, I'll never forget it. I did it one night at Union Hall in Brooklyn. It's a pretty friendly room, artsy room, and I bombed. But I heard a couple laughers. 
And this girl came up to me after the show and she was like, I got to talk to you. And I was like, okay, what's up? And she's like, I was watching your show and I really loved it. And I was like, thanks. So I knew she was one of the laughers. And she's like, but I got to tell you, I dated a guy who was depressed and I peaced out. I ghosted him and I feel really bad. I just watched your show and I feel really like he had problems and I should have. And I was like, no, like dating people. Like I, I, I have made life horrible for people I dated when I was in the midst of my depression. Like I get it. Like, don't worry about it. Don't sit around. I didn't mean to make you feel bad. She's like, no, I just kind of want to email him and say like, hey, I get it a little more now and I uh, hope you're doing well. And I was like, cool. And she's like, what do you think I should do? I was like, probably send that email. I bet that would mean a lot. And she turned around and ran away. And that started happening consistently where even on the nights when I would bomb, people would wait for me afterwards. And I'd realize that these small pockets of laughter, sometimes even just one or two laughers, they would invariably be the person who had been through depression or was raising a depressed kid or had dated someone or was the brother or sister of that person. And I realized, oh, this is a very, very strange problem to have as a comedian, which is that the people who get it really get it and they're laughing hard, but it's because they've seen it from the inside. So I realized that my job with the show and and the thing maybe that I'm most proud of it is I think the show actually is a really good way to explain depression to people who don't know what it is firsthand. I realized, oh, the people who have been through depression are finding this pretty funny in kind of a sick way or the people who have been around it, seen it in their homes or their relationships or their lives, they get it and they do think it's funny. People who are nervous about this or who don't totally understand what it is or who fear that it might be a thing that happens to them, they're so put off. So it became about kind of like being the Rosetta Stone of what depression is to people who are outside of that bubble. So, so let me ask you about that because while you're doing this, you're always in a venue, right? And someone owns the venue and is making money on the venue. Yeah. Like, let's say, particularly say it's a club. How did club owners like what you were doing if only two people out of 30 are laughing? Well, what I was, I was, I, I was pretty strategic and pretty smart, I think, in that there's a handful of sections of the show where I would remove the guts of a bit and do them in clubs. I did not do all the long, you know, when you only have 10, 15 minutes, uh, I wasn't always doing all the long stuff. The one that I really, fine-tuned in the clubs is there's a stretch of the show where I talk about a night where I was out drinking and kind of really blacked out and lost my mind and went on this kind of rampage throughout New Brunswick, New Jersey. And uh, my, my next to my hometown. Right. You're Edison. If you North Brunswick, North Brunswick. Right. So, you know, like the drinking culture there and it was, it was really, it was a, it was a really, really wild night from what I remember. And a lot of people who have watched the show have told me like when it comes to like outright pound for pound funny, that stretch is the one that kind of has the most gasoline thrown onto the fire. You can just feel the show start moving at a comedic pace in that stretch. That is not surprisingly the one that I figured out how to translate to the clubs most. So it's all tools, right? It's all tools. It's like when I'm in a club, I want that crowd to have great night. And if anybody's been having a shit day, I want them to laugh hard walk out of here feeling like, I'm glad I went to a comedy show. That's my job. But it's also a tool, right? If I'm working on a bigger picture, long-term thing like that, it's like, well, can I, can I take a chunk of this super dark show, go in a club and have them feel like this is 
just as valid as all the setup punchline stuff I do. If I can, I slip this into the middle of a fifteen minute set, and they don't even sense how dark it is. And then when I take that chunk back out, and drop it back into the super dark piece. Oh, well, now I've got the funniest chunk of the dark stuff because I took that out, removed all the nuts and bolts, threw them into an environment to see if it would sink or swim there. It's like, oh, I can get away with this in a club. Now I can go through the club process. How much comedic muscle can I pack onto it? Because that's what you get to do in clubs, right? How much muscle can I add to this comedically? And then I bring it back out to the artsy spaces and it just was all of a sudden it felt like that stretch was just on steroids. And then you get enough of those and then I feel like I have a right to call this comedy and put it in front of the world at large. So, so and the, the interesting thing there is instead of dividing up that world into, oh, here's the alty, artsy Brooklyn guys and here's the club guys. It's actually kind of being respectful to both worlds and 100%. trying to be successful in both worlds that creates that funny plus. Now, you know, it's it's combining the best of both. And I think, again, I hate to always kind of bring this to a bigger picture, but I find if someone's into computer programming and also painting, uh, there's some way to combine the two interests that creates you know, career plus some, yes. something that's unusual, unique to you that, that, that everybody gets to appreciate. And I think, I think the, the thing that I really stand by about that idea that I think does apply to anybody is whatever field you're in, the bar has been set and there are all sorts of people in your chain of command, your bosses, their bosses who go, okay, that's where the bar is set. Can you do it that well? And then you get there and what you get is just a pat on the head from someone who goes, great, you've learned how to do this thing other people have figured out. But the sooner you can start finding those alternate avenues or those things nobody sees coming that you can weave into your version of it, this is how you supersede the bar. And once you start to supersede the bar, and once you start to get innovative and include things that no one sees coming, and be comfortable with it, yes, and be it's it. Once you get there, exactly like you said, when that becomes a comfortable thing, you become a little more bulletproof because now you're doing it in a way, and you're bringing stuff to the table that they don't have and they haven't seen elsewhere. That makes you bulletproof. So, so in terms of like interweaving, you know, using the stage to figure out. The funny, you said something a little earlier when you were talking to the girl after one of your shows and you said um, you've made life horrible for many of the women you've dated. Yeah. Like that seems to be, you know, that seems to be almost the premise of a joke. And you could just give example after example with, you know, just using the comedic formula, the third one being the most absurd and ridiculous. Yeah. Would that be a way you would work through a material like that? Yeah. I mean, I would, you know, I had a, I remember my my joke notebook from Career Suicide was just, it was all pages falling out like scribbles every performance it would be like I think you know here's the one sentence thing I think I might have that I'm going to workshop tonight and then it would just be scribbles surrounding the whole thing of like exactly like you said of like I think maybe there's something to maybe I can go up there and tell a story about how Adderall made me shit blood and when you That's hear funny. that when you yeah when you hear that it's like that might be that might be the a really funny thing. That might be a very dark thing. I don't know what people are going to think of me abusing Adderall to the point where it makes me shit blood. Like, there's a way to make that funny. There's also a way that it might just be kind of gross and scatological and disturbing. Let's see if I can have both. Let's see if I can have my cake and eat it too. 
And that was another bit that it's just chip away at it, chip away at it, you know, and, uh, you know, and, and, and like, I think one of the most important things that I want to keep reiterating is that I didn't, I really, really needed to know in my guts that that show was 51% funny. That was one of my main goals was if it's not past a tipping point where it's primarily funny, even if just by a couple inches in, in that direction, then I feel like it's kind of bullshit to put it out there and, and kind of try to piggyback off off pain. So 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 two two questions about this, and then I want to hit your your tips mm-hmm, on writing mm-hmm. life comedy. Which I uh, I love that we started by saying we're gonna dive into that. Right. And we wound up but covering every other base before this, we even got there. This I I just get curious. I can't help I it. I love it. And um Right now, I mean, in in August 2018, you had this show running. Like you said, some people were working on it for nine years. The show was canceled, the Chris Gethard show. How do you, you know, and the entertainment world, the artistic world, whether you're a book publisher or you're going into TV, you're doing comedy, or even the entrepreneurship world, there's so much, it's not a safe path for stability. There's a lot of volatility. By the way, the volatility might be the safest route of all, as opposed to working at a job for 20 years and then being laid off. But that aside, you just experienced something that was maybe painful or frustrating. Yeah. How do you now deal with uh, these frustrations and depressing moments that, that you know, would, would kill a depressed person? <laughs> well, it's a really good question. I have not fallen into too much depression about my show ending. Um, I certainly still, I, you know if not every day, certainly still every week, every few days, I'll I'll find myself going, what should I have done different? Should I have told off that development executive who was breathing down my neck too hard? Should I have, my show was live. Should I I have gone off the rails and just said yes to their notes and then just done different stuff live? Like what could I have done different? But it doesn't get me anything. It doesn't get me anything to sit around wondering what I could have done different. So it's like one of those things where, you have to be able to sort of like respect the emotions you're having of sadness and regret, but also it's like the emotions can exist as long as the logic also exists. But okay, like, but but there you're talking about regrets. So regrets yeah. about wondering what what could I have done differently. Regrets about the past. Anxieties about the future. And yeah. you can say, um, show got canceled, and and typical anxiety might project that out forever into the future. This show got canceled, so that means everything I ever do from now on gets canceled. Maybe, and that could Who be knows? depressing. It could be, yeah. And especially, you know, I uh, I lost the show. My first kid is due two weeks from today. As we're taping, congratulations! This. Thanks so much. You can also imagine you're like, oh, you make a lot of money when you host a TV show, and now I don't have that money, and I have to come off the road when the kid is born. Can't just be gone. So there's two major revenue streams. So. The same year I'm having my first kid is also the year where taking the biggest financial setback I've taken maybe in my adult life, um, it's daunting. It's hard not to be scared. It's hard not to feel that pressure. But I think at the end of the day, it, it all goes back to what I was saying before is like I did grow up a punk rock kid and that's always brought a certain level of of integrity to my goals and just kind of got to remind myself that at the end of the day, this is all a big game and it's all about ego 
And the game is kind of only fun to play when you manage to put the ego aside. So yeah, I mean, I'll rebuild. Maybe I won't ever have another TV show. That's okay. Maybe I won't matter anymore. Maybe I'll never make a thing as meaningful to people as career suicide again. That's okay. I still made it. It's weird. You know, I'm 38 years old. I had a TV show with my name on it. HBO special, three books that I've published, pretty popular podcast, and still 90%. I can still take the seven train to the one train and come up here and no one knows who I am. It's like, I just keep cranking away, keep finding the next thing. And if it runs out and it dries up, doesn't change the fact that I really, uh, I think more than most of my peers and most people of my era I think I was really willing to kind of stick my neck out on the chopping block to do it my way and to do it in what I thought was the right way. And they can't take that away from me. They can take away my TV show, but they cannot take away my integrity. They just can't. And I think not a lot of people can say that. I think a lot of people say, well, I'm going to do, I'm going to be a lawyer for these bad guys for the next 10 years, put some money away, and then write the great American novel. Right. And... They or never like, do. or I'm, or then I'll switch over and like go pro bono and represent the ASPCA. Right. And then forty years later, they're living in a glass tower in the sky. Right. Sitting on that money and feeling like they never, uh, they never followed through. I'm the opposite. I've never achieved the big things because I consistently, uh, <laughs> I consistently crap out. Sometimes because I do want to just hang on to my integrity well before I ever get there. But I think also defining what those big things are, that's uh, subjective. Like you have an HBO special where you're able to, you know, A, be more than, much more than 51% funny and help a lot of people. So you had a TV show for many years. You have, you have three books. If you had looked back when you were 13 and, and oh, said, I'm living my dream life. Right. That's what I always try to remind myself on the worst days is like, I'm, if you had told me, if you had told me when I was 13 years old, man, you get to go around New York City doing stand up comedy any night of the week. People would be, you know, if you want to do a bunch of shows, people would be happy to have you and you can go do it any night of the week. I would have said, oh my God, sign me up. That's the dream. And I get to do that. And then all this other stuff on top of it has been really nice. But I still get to go do it. I say in the book, I'm like, that's why I love live performance. It's like, you know, when I'm doing my TV show, I'm getting all these notes and the notes are crazy and obtrusive and never ending. And then you step back and you go, wait, the person, the person giving me these notes has no training or background in comedy. They produced reality shows and then stumbled into this. Why are they explaining to me how comedy works? This doesn't make sense. And that's not, I'm not saying that from an arrogant point of view, but more from a thing of like, this isn't logical, you know? Like any book I've written, yeah, you got to get editors and publishers and everybody's got to put their stamp on it, give it a thumbs up, all of it. But if you give me a microphone, all I got to do is say something honest and if people buy tickets, then I've earned the right to do it. They can never take that away. So I'm living my dream every day. Even when I'm striking out on the big things, I'm living my dream. And by the way, once baby is born, it's. I was about to ask, you know, do you ever feel like you, you're you're branded now by these stories of depression and anxiety? And so yeah. you have to keep telling them over and over again. But I can guarantee you, 
once you have a baby, you're going to have entirely new stories immediately. Like you're yeah. not going to run out of material. Yes, the tank will refill. I thought what you were going to ask, something I've thought about a lot is like, man, that kid's going to grow up and see that special someday. And that, yeah, but that's okay. He'll be proud of that. I hope so, but it it does throw me for a loop. Like, how do you explain that? Like, I have worry is like, is that going to be a thing that like, like are the other kids on the playground going to try to hurt him by going like, your dad's crazy, you know? Like I can tell you, no. So who knows? You don't, you don't know my story too much. I've written a bunch of books about my own adventures with suicidal tendencies, depression, anxiety, and and many other things like horrible things I've done and come back from. Not only have my kids read all my books, I have 21 books out there. Not wow. only have all my kids, my kids read my book, they've read the critical books. Out of 21 books, three are good, <laughs> two are good, the rest suck. But uh, they, they've read the two that are good. And not only have they read it, but their friends' parents have read it and talked to their friends about the books. Wow. And, and their friends sometimes come up to them and said, you say, Josie, is your daddy homeless? <laughs> or is your daddy this or that? And they don't know what to say sometimes, but they they won't trust me with certain things. But in general, they're proud of their That's dad. That's cool to hear. Their dad created something that the world noticed. That's very and, and cool. And that's important for them. More important than what you it's is more important than what you're saying is how you're living. And that's that's really what's important to a kid. I, that I am so happy that you said that. Cause I've sat and thought about it. It's like some days somebody will be like, your dad shits blood and wants to die. And like that's how he that's gonna be like a weakness that's exploited. And, and they for might him. make fun of you for that, but oh, it's, no, it's 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 but they're not gonna be like talking to their therapist about it. <laughs> yeah, and I I, ho- I just hope that I uh it's I, I I remember my dad sat me down a few years ago and uh I just helped him move. My parents were moving and he called me, so it was like lifting furniture with my dad all day. It was just the two of us. And we got dinner at the end of the day, and he goes, I just want you to know that I'm jealous of you. And that is not a thing my dad would say. My dad's like old school, North Jersey, you know, like hardworking, like you wake up, you go to work, you don't complain. Like, what are you talking about? You're jealous of me. This is insane. It's like by far the most emotional thing he ever said to me. And he goes, well, when I take a step back and look at you, you've never accepted money for a thing you didn't believe in. And I'm really jealous of that. And uh, it kind of blew my mind because I never thought of myself that way. But then I realized the impact I was having on him. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm jealous of you. You did all this stuff. you 27 years old. You had two kids and a mortgage. So I think a lot about that of like my kid, will, there will be a lot that he has to scratch his head about and a lot that he has to reconcile. But also I think he'll really be able to see like I tried to do things in a way I believed in and I tried to treat people right along the way. And I hope that that's the thing he sees about all of it and not just the sad parts or the embarrassing parts. I think what your dad said to you is can't, maybe you don't realize how big that is because a hundred million other people can't say that in, in, in the U S for, for a a decade and a half, I did whatever I could to grab money Yeah, and it's painful and I'll tell you, my kids won't remember that part of my life yeah. other than me being in pain occasionally. Yeah. But they do remember the crazy things that ultimately had positive results. In your case, 
an HBO special, a TV show, you know, books, yeah. renown, and so on. So, okay, now I do want to hit the, <laughs> the, the article. <laughs> my, you know, you, you, the article is my personal opinions regarding what I do, and this is, I don't know, was this a response to Gary's? No, tips? so it, it, Gary started putting those tips out, and they were blowing my mind. And they're all great. Yeah, they're every single one is just true and useful and like just bare bones. Yep, that works. Like that clearly is just a person who's done this forever. It works. I've been keeping because like you said, like sometimes I'm working on stuff that's pretty out of the box. And I just learned along the way that my joke notebooks very often will also have things like this. So I started putting a whole list of like okay, these don't belong in a joke notebook because these are just qu kind of more things that I've realized where I'm like, oh, if I, if I, if I, when I'm working on material I really care about, just make sure it hits all these buttons. So I texted Gary and I was like, dude, I'm loving your tips. I was like, I've had, for like three years, I've been kind of writing down kind of the guidelines I have for myself. And he was like, oh, that's awesome. And I was like, I might rip you off and put it out there. And he was like, please do. Please do, because he's a nice and gracious dude. So I, I wanted to make sure that I very loudly in that article and very bold-faced was like, Gary is the best. He's doing a better version of this. I happen to have a list I've been keeping for a few years as well, so I'm going to throw it out there. And please, if you're a fan of mine, you should know Gary Goldman. He's much better at comedy than I am. And if you don't know him, there's a very, very good excuse to go read his things because they're, they're hands down better. Um, well, but well, I'm happy with mine too. Everybody's got their own style and approach. But <laughs> so, your first comment before I read it out, I'll say, do you know, do you know Jocko Willink? He's um, an ex uh, Navy SEAL, big guy. Uh, he wrote a book called Extreme Ownership and a couple other things about uh, leadership. And and you know, he's been to Iraq and led troops sometimes to their death and 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 so on. And his whole point is, you have to own. You can't. You can't blame. You have to own what you're doing. If something yeah. goes wrong, you have to own it and analyze it. Figure out how you could have been better, and then take that information into the next situation. So, you your first tip is, it's never the audience's fault. Never, which I'll interpret it means. If you bomb on the stage, I see a lot of comedians every single day yep. get up on the stage and said, "Oh man, that audience sucks." And it doesn't give them room to improve. Dude, 100%. And I bet being here all the time, here's the thing that's really getting me mad lately. And I hate, I usually just try to be chill and nice, but you can see I'm actually getting mad. Do you find more and more the past few years, it's not just getting off stage. They'll say that into a microphone. Oh, I They I've will say, this sucks tonight. Why did I come all the way up to the Upper West Side? And it's like, it's not about you. you yeah. If they're not laughing, you're, they're not failing at their job. You're failing at your job. Yeah. You're in a microphone mad at them for not laughing at you. Where I, does that arrogance come from in the comedy community? Right, which, so I agree that that happens. I think that's almost a different thing because it's not only are you blaming the audience, but which which is could still be internal and you can go off the stage and leave the audience alone, but you're actually making the audience who paid tickets to for paid for tickets feel, to feel bad feel dumb so, so like i once there was once downstairs it was a slow night i forget if it was like some season where it was whatever nobody was here it was like a monday night and uh uh there was one guy sitting at a table by himself far from a few other people so when you have people sitting spaced out it's hard for the laughter to go viral right. and this guy i could see i was sitting near him so i could see he was smiling 
but he just wasn't laughing. Most people don't laugh. It's not like people laugh all day. He was just smiling. He was enjoying himself. But the co comedian on stage literally said, uh, you know, he ended and he said, you guys have been a crappy audience, but particularly you. And he said, you know, F you. And he walked off the stage and the guy was having a, I could see he was kind of having a fun time, but he was just smiling. He wasn't like belly laughing. Yeah. And that comedian hasn't come back here. I, Good. I made it known. And, uh, but, uh, I do think that's a little bit more where it's, it's not only is he blaming the audience, but he's, he's, he's vent. He's not even thinking that the audience might not even be a bad audience just because they're not laughing. Doesn't mean they're not enjoying you. Yeah. And, 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 and I'm so glad to hear you saying this because the other thing I think about is with such a boom in comedy the past handful of years, I think maybe a lot of us on the comedian side have forgotten that it's not here for us to get pampered. And when this bubble bursts, a lot of us aren't going to hang on. Like I go and headline on the road all the time. And I know when the bubble bursts, I'm not at the top of the list. I might not be selling tickets anymore, you know, and I'm doing it now. Be grateful where you got. And you think about, in my mind, I go, so there's some guy, he's sitting at a table by himself. He chose to sit three or four tables away from anyone else. That tells me maybe this dude is having a real shitty day and he can't handle being around people right now. Maybe he's had one of the harder days of his life and he said to himself, I just need to laugh tonight, but I'm going to go sit off in the corner because I just don't feel like dealing with people. I've had nights like that. That might be the dude that needs the laughs the most. That might be someone who's in a mental state that they're not capable of laughing out loud. But maybe this idea that they're out and they're hearing stuff that amuses them and having fun, even if they're not laughing out loud, is giving them a night where they can forget for an hour or two how shitty things are. I've never, I don't know that I've ever gone out and bought a comedy club level ticket and paid a two drink minimum and sat by myself because I was having a great night. You know what I mean? So who, why would anyone single that person out and go, F you for coming here? It's your job to give that person in particular the best possible show well, you can. Well, and also I've seen, um, I, I forgot where I saw it. Maybe it was in Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee with, with Seinfeld, but Brian Regan said uh, when he's bombing or let's just say when the audience is silent or not responding how he would like, he reminds himself he's on stage for himself. He wants to make himself laugh and have fun and then he pictures himself in the audience because then at least he sees himself laughing. Yes. And it's not really about the audience. It's about you having fun on the stage or else what's the point? If you're just doing it to make the audience laugh and you're not having fun, why are you doing it? Yes. You got to do what you do for the stage. You got to do and, it for And that. again, and this seats, probably applies to every aspect of life. I think yes. so. The seats owe you nothing. The seat, do you know, I don't know if you're a punk guy at all, but do you know Black Flag? No. Black Flag was uh, in the early 80s. They kind of started the hardcore movement and very, very influential, like do it. You're kind of the first DIY band, notoriously, in a lot of people's minds. Just like got in a van and just drove. They'd drive for hours to do one show or they'd stay out for 100 nights in a row and do this a show every single night. And Henry Rollins was the lead singer of that band for a long time. And he uh, he has a story in his book that I always loved talks about how they like drove for hours and hours to the middle of nowhere to some bar and the show hadn't been advertised right and they'd been playing clubs in like the bigger cities where four or 500 people would show up. They drive out to the middle of who knows where and there's three people in the bar 
and he's in the van and he's moaning about it. He's like, why did we even come here? We should bail, these three idiots. We got to do a whole show. And the other members of the band sat him down and they're like, hey, these three people are the people who give enough of a shit in this part of the world to even bother with us. Guess what? No one else around here does. So why are you mad at the three people who actually came? We got to actually give the night that we have four or 500 people. That's easy. If you have 500 people screaming their heads off because they love you, you can go and do whatever you want. Miss every note, mess up your own lyrics. They're still going to scream their heads off because they love you. These three people deserve the best show we've ever done because they're the ones who actually showed up. And I wish comedians remembered that because sit here and we blame the audience. It's not their jobs to make us feel good. It's our job to make them laugh. But but let me, let, I'm going to play the devil's advocate also. So let's say you have an audience where they were all like earlier that afternoon, oh my gosh, I can't wait till later. We're going to see, see Chris Gethard perform. And they're all excited and they go to the show and they're 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 laughing at everything and they're clapping at everything and they get your autographs afterwards and then there's another crowd where uh they're all from Norway and China and uh -huh. Brazil and they don't really understand English so well and they don't get your jokes that might be a little bit more you know US specific I don't know and sometimes they really are particularly in a club scene where they're strangers or where it's not like your fans, uh, there could be a bad crowd. <laughs> See, but it's not the crowd's fault necessarily that they're a bad crowd. But in my mind, I, I think two things right away. And maybe, I, I don't know, I get caught up in stuff and I get extreme about it. But there's a part of me that goes, A, did I get cocky because the first crowd loved me so much? The easy crowd, did they inflate my ego to the point where I forgot that I have to put in the work? Mm. And B, if I'm really good at this and I've really pounded the pavement and tried to figure this out and how to always put on a show I'm proud of, why couldn't I figure out how to play to the Chinese tourists or German tourists or Australian tourists? We've all, any comedian in New York who's been around the clubs enough knows like every once in a while you're going to get into a room where literally half the people are from Germany and it's just because some group was passing through town and they and we found all out know about they the show. they do not laugh at all. <laughs> yeah, but uh, they don't. But then sometimes people figure out how to make them laugh and those people are the ones where you go, that's a total pro. Well, well, I've seen some comedians, it's almost like they recognize real quickly, okay, this is the type of crowd where they don't re they're not really going to laugh and maybe, they're, maybe they even got worse through the evening. They're, not, they're just tired and they want to go home. And I've seen them like literally pull out of their pockets, almost literally pull out of their pockets and deliver the set that they planned for this type of audience. Yeah. So like like Brian Scott McFadden, I was watching him the other day, and it was a very quiet crowd. And he started off telling this joke like, "Well, look, I almost didn't make it here. I was at a children's hospital for terminal diseases, and a little kid, maybe seven, eight years old, said, "Are you Brian Scott McFadden?" And he said, why, yeah, I am. And the little kid said, well, can you just stay with me a little bit, a little while? Um, and Brian, Brian said, well, no, I can't. I'm afraid I have to go out to this comedy club and perform because <laughs> other people need me too. And so, and he said, so literally, when you don't laugh, a child dies. Yeah. And the crowd laughed. It they was get great. it. You figure out how to crack them, right? I think, I, I sometimes think, and maybe this is something I need to add to the list is that I think comedy is way more basketball than baseball or football in the sense of 
baseball, there's only a certain number of ways to swing a bat, right? There's only a certain number of ways to slide. And there's people who do it at the apex of their profession, and that's what makes the great people great, is they figure out the mechanics. Basketball, the truly great players are the ones where it's their brand of creativity that puts it over the top. Comedians have to be the same way, right? Like, we all know, like, Kyle Korver is a great basketball player with an NBA career that spanned, like, 15 years at this point, and he's a great three-point shooter. But nobody says he's as good as LeBron James, and that's because LeBron James has nights where you go, how did he even think to do that? How did he even see that part of the court? How did he know that pass was there? He hit a, you know, he hit a shot from three point out, three feet out from the three point line, and the next play, he he dunked it over a seven foot guy. How is he doing all these things at once? And it's because constantly have to reevaluate what's going on and all these interchangeable moving part, parts on the court, and you have to be able to understand and process them and make split second decisions about how to adjust around them. Comedy's a lot closer to that than get the mechanics right and do it the same every time. Well, well, it's interesting because. A lot of people say, okay, comedy is a skill. Basketball is a skill. Business is a skill. Chess is a skill. Uh, but I think for these skills that are worthy enough of getting good at, they're actually not one skill. They're like 20 or 30 micro skills that are independent of each other, and you kind of have to get great at all of them. So, you know, business is a classic example. You can't just be good at coming up with an idea. You have to be good at negotiating. You have to be good at selling. You have to be good at like, uh, you know, leadership and management and marketing. And there's all these micro skills that have not, just because you're good at coming up with ideas, you might not be good at sales. Just because you're good at negotiating, you might not be good at managing employees or, or managing shareholders or, or talking to customers when things are bad. They're all independent skills and you have to get good at all of them to be good at that to be considered good at that one higher skill. Comedy is the same way. It, you've described probably five, six, seven different ways you had to get good in ways that are completely independent of each other. The Alt-Brooklyn scene, the club scene, improv, telling stories, punchlines, dealing with the bad crowd, dealing with the good crowd. That's, they're all, just because you're dealing with the good crowd, you might be suck at dealing with the bad crowd. You have to be good at, to be a good comedian, you have to be good at both. Get it, good at all of it. And if you're, and if it doesn't go your way one night, it's because you clearly have a blind spot amongst those skills. It's not the crowd's fault that you couldn't recover. Recovery is as much of a skill as having strong punchlines. And, and I think part of that is you still don't have to expect, success is not making a bad, quote unquote, bad crowd laugh. Success is just basically, well, how would you define success in that, in that case? I, would, I think success in any situation when you go up and you're doing stand-up, to me, it's as simple as for the 15 minutes they were watching me, or however long it is. But I feel like 15 is pretty standard, right? Yeah. For that 12 to 15 minutes I was on stage, did the people in that room have a slightly better chunk of their day than before I was talking into a microphone. For me, it's as basic and bare bones as that. And then it becomes how high can I make that go? Can I make this like a euphoric 15 minutes of their night? Can I make this a thing that they're telling their friends about next weekend? Can I make it a thing where 
five years from now, they're still at the dinner table and they have a bit that's referencing one of my bits. Like, how far can I take them having that amazing 15 minutes? But it starts with the basic level of success in like a pass-fail scenario is you started at this base level. Can I get you up here? Can I just get you one step above having a better day? And then sometimes you can't catch it and it stays even. And then sometimes you have a real bad night where you've actually made their night worse. And that's when you've actually failed, right? Like sometimes you kind of whiff and it stays neutral. Sometimes you do so poorly that they're actually like, why did I bother? Or they're mad or they're bummed that they came. But success to me means you get that ball rolling on them feeling a little bit better than they were feeling before you were handed the microphone. And by the way, thinking that way is a way for you to take a little bit of the pressure off yourself. So like, I think a lot of times, let's say in sales, you view success as, did I make the sale? That might not be the case. You might, it might be the case. Did I just build a small connection with this person? So three years later, when I run into them in a different context, it's, it's a good memory for you. You took the pressure off yourself. Don't need to make them laugh. Did I just do something that was interesting that made them talk about it later that improved their lives? It reminds me of one of your influences. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw the morning show, David Letterman with Andy uh-huh. Kaufman. On oh, it. two of my biggest influences. So, so Andy Kaufman on the morning show, he specific, uh, like he did many times, but this struck me in particular. He specifically goes out there trying to bomb in the worst way possible. Yes. And that is so hilarious because it's so interesting. You never see someone do this. Like he goes, sits right next to David Letterman on the, you know, the normal chair and his nose is running. He's like <laughs> yeah. barely talking because he's acting depressed. And, uh, uh, is that the so- one that ends with him asking the audience for change? Yeah. He's asking for change. Brilliant. He goes out into the, he's like stumbles out into the audience and people are giving him money. Yeah. Like they thought it was serious. They're giving him money. They think he's like down and out because David Letterman asked him, well, do you have any projects going on? He's like, uh, no, not, not really. <laughs> and he's just, his eyes are looking like kind of like he's on drugs and he's, he's unshaven. He's wearing, his clothes are all sticking out. And, uh, well, there's just, nobody better at the funny plus idea, right? Of like, yeah. this is going to be funny, but it's also going to give you more than that. And it's a risk. There's y'all. Oh, yeah. Because I think you buy, people think you buy success with money or you buy, you buy big things with money, but you buy success. You buy a big life with big risks. And he, that's what he did. I think so. I mean, I'm always inspired by him. Like I'm, I'm known for being pretty honest in my work and he's known for being absolutely dishonest and always kind of behind a veil of a character. But I look at him and I still, I mean, in high school, I became obsessed with him. I loved wrestling. And then I found out about him through all his wrestling stuff and became obsessed with him. I just still look and think like nobody ever gave crowds better experiences than Andy Kaufman. Like in that one, he probably made a lot of people uncomfortable with the wrestling stuff. He would make all of Memphis, Tennessee legitimately hate him, but it's also so funny. And, uh, the Bob, the 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 uh, Andy Cliff or what Tony, Clif- Clifton. Tony Clifton, Tony yeah. Clifton, just making people so mad, and then they probably go home and talk about it with their friends, and then you know back then too, before the internet, probably like some of those crowds in the early days of Tony Clifton legitimately didn't know it was Andy Kaufman, and when when he did his Carnegie Hall special, I thought this was such a brilliant twist. He'd been doing Tony Clifton for years. The cat was out of the bag, 
And he had Tony Clifton Bob's Muda out on it. stage. And then Andy walks out with them and they go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And they can't figure it out for a second. And there's such joy in that. I love it. You keep saying with business too, I feel like the, the way this all applies when you think of it is like, you know, it, it, I would imagine that for people who are in business, you have to go into a room sometimes and you have to pitch, you know, you're trying to get a client and they've probably heard a hundred pitches before. And you walk into the room and realize, oh, there was some scandal this morning that's going to change everything. I got to adjust this on its feet. I can't just stick to the PowerPoint presentation. Or you find out, oh, this family is like the Waltons. They have a very strong religious background, and we didn't realize that until we already got here. Like That's the same exact thing as walking in and realizing, oh, the audience is all Australian tonight. I got to throw out half my references, and I got to start talking to them, and I got to eliminate all the material that relies on American and then I got to fill in that three minutes I'm losing with three minutes that's more universal. But I left it out because I don't think it's my best bit. So I got to reorder the bits to make sure it's not first, it's not last, it's landing in a place where I can get away with it. Like I feel like business, all sorts of people have to do it all the time, adjusting on your feet in the same way we do as comedians. Well, and the other way- Flies com- everywhere. The other way business and comedy does that is- simply addressing what the audience is thinking. So mm-hmm. if, if, if everybody's like, if the company you're pitching is like Walmart, Christians, whatever, and you're not, then you, that's the first thing you have to address. You have to say, listen, we obviously come from different backgrounds, but I'm going to show you why that is going to help you. Right. In fact, and with comedy, you might say, oh, you're all from Germany. I have to take out all my Hitler jokes now right. or whatever. You know, right. you have to invest it, address it in some funny way, but you have to call out what the audience is thinking. Right, right. I think so. You kind of have to be, I've always, I've always sort of felt like one of the tricks of comedy that I admire and the people I like the most is that they're able to, they're able to articulate the audience's thoughts a half step before the audience is able to fully articulate mm-hmm. that thought. They have, they have said it, they have, they're like surfing a wave where they're able to say what the audience is feeling before the audience has figured out how to verbalize that. So the comedian gets the actual crystallized thought first. Right, and that's that's a very important concept um, in, so there's this guy, Robert Cialdini, who's, who wrote a book called Influence, which is considered the the book on influencing other people, whether it's in marketing or whatever situation you're in. And one of his most important points is answer their objections before they bring them up. Yes. And that's kind of the same concept. Yeah. Get there first. Get there first. Else they won't you lose their trust. Yeah. And if you if you tell them how they're feeling when it's still just kind of an unexpressed instinct, they will go, oh yeah, that's right. I'm with this person. If it takes you too long to get there or it's hazy, and they have a chance to start formulating their own opinions without you kind of manipulating it on the way, getting them to land where you want. Now you've opened it up where they also get to decide if they like you or not. Right, yeah, and they won't probably. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly you're on the tightrope now where you could have never opened that door. You could have never stepped out on that ledge. So now we'll get to your second point. (laughs) Oh, wow, this is going to be a long one. No, no. Well, uh, do you have do you have do you have a hard stop? We'll we'll we'll, we'll, we'll go through these. I I know it's like I don't like to be in a. I just have podcast. to. Yeah, at some point I just got to turn my phone on to make sure my wife hasn't gotten into labor. Outside of that, turn on your phone right good. now. Turn on your phone. Oh no, we're good. We're okay. good. Yeah. Okay. Your second point is 
There's no type of comedy that sucks, only shitty versions of it. All types are shitty sometimes. Yes. So what does that mean? But it's like what we were saying before. I feel like that's the shorthand of alt comedy can be brilliant, it can be horrible. Club comedy can be brilliant, it can be horrible. The one that gets shitted on the most, my old background, improv can be horrible, but if crowd is laughing and they're enjoying it, it can also be pretty transcendent. Like, Well, and there's this big debate now because of um, the special uh, uh, Hannah. Nanette. Hannah Gadsby. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, because there's not as many laughs, a lot of people say, oh, it's not comedy then. And yet people really enjoyed that special. Yeah, and, and I think for the people who enjoyed it, it's just as valid as anything else. I think I've had a lot of thoughts about it only because I felt like career suicide wasn't, you know... I think came out about 18 months prior and, and I had a similar experience of how do I place all the serious stuff alongside the laughs. So I kind of felt like I went through a similar thing and I, I think I watched your special and I, I was really blown away in the sense of like, oh, my priority was to kind of try to integrate it throughout and see how my, well I could get that balance. Hers was... I refuse to do that anymore. I'm just going to blow you away. I'm just going to like treat the serious stuff like I've got a Tommy gun that I'm shooting the serious stuff with you at and then walk away at the end. thought well, it was really interesting, but it was, it was not the path I, I, I chose to walk, but it was really, really interesting. It reminds me of what Dave Chappelle told Will Smith. Will Smith has got this Facebook show called Bucket List. Right, I saw that going comedy. around. I haven't watched it yet. Well, Dave Chappelle, his main advice to Will Smith, Will Smith goes to Dave Chappelle for advice, uh, like we all do. Yes. And yes. Dave Chappelle says, um, better to be interesting than funny. Yeah. Which, you know, and of course, Dave Chappelle's very funny. It's easy for him to say that, but he makes a really good point. A lot of times, again, you get the safe premise, punchline, premise, punchline, but you don't learn anything. You don't take home anything that, that oh, I, I thought about something in an interesting way or a different way, or I learned something about this person that's interesting. Yeah. I think it takes a lot more bravery to be boring than funny like funny is safe but you might walk out on a limb where you're aiming for interesting it might bore them or lose them you gotta have some guts to do that though yeah and then if it pays off sometimes it pays off way bigger than that first laugh would have here's an interesting one it's weak to have points with no premise it's cowardly to have premises but never have a point um and I was thinking about this in the in the context also of replace point by punchline. Punchline. It's cowardly uh -huh. to have premises but never have a punchline. So, for instance, I saw someone with a premise the other day. Um, two different com comedians actually with premises of uh, there's now people are saying you can't say things like uh, 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 oh we just killed two birds with one stone. And there's there's all this language about animals right. that are actually negative to the animals and and now it's not considered you know politically correct to say this language or at least one article was suggesting this and it became news so a couple of people i saw in a row that day have that premise but not really have a punchline to it other than that's stupid yeah and uh yeah you know it's so i don't know is that it's it's right in line with what I'm saying. Like that's the exact first one of like that's great that you're making the right stand morally but why, why are you doing it on a comedy bill if you haven't figured out the second half of it that earns you the right to make the point? And it goes in the other way too. Of like, there's some people who I think are just so good at punchline, 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 
And then you walk away and you're like, well, you've been doing the same act for 15 years. And at some point, don't you want to actually direct it towards something? And, and not necessarily something political, but something personal to you, something that might actually draw a line in the sand and, and show them a little bit about who you are and what you believe. And I think uh, there's people who hide on both sides. I also am realizing that many of these points are quietly more judgmental than I realized before we started speaking about them out loud. Right, because right, you could say, well, that's just two different types of comedy and no comedy is shitty. But right. you bring up an interesting point. But is though, it like, comedy? I think that's the point. Is like, is it comedy? Is it comedy to go up there and be and say, like you said, well, here's a whole thing about animal rights, but then and then they're clapping, but no one laughed. It's like, why? There's there's a better version of that that's actually comedy. Right. There's a better version of it. There's there's somehow there's a if, as Bonnie McFarlane once told me on this podcast, if you have a funny premise, there's a funny punchline out there somewhere. It's good to have a funny yes, premise. Yes, yes. And then you've got to dig for that funny punchline. Yes, exactly. And then but you but the other one is interesting too, where I've seen comedians in terms of laughs per minute, I've never seen anything like it. It's like a magic trick practically. Um, but then you leave and you can't remember a single thing yeah. they said, although everybody's like belly laughing the whole time. That's not necessarily bad. It certainly is funny and it's people are laughing, but you wonder like what else could have been done. Yeah. So. And and I, I think it ties in very directly, I, I, very, very much so in another point that I have in there, which is you got to take some time to live some real life. If you don't actually get out in the world and experience it, then what are your jokes about? And I'm, you have seen, I'm sure you have seen this a million times in the club where these tie directly into each other. Like we were just saying, like you said, this person can go punchline, 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 laugh a minute and I'm out and you don't remember any of it. And I would bet a lot of times that's because the person has spent, these are probably, and some of my peers do this to great effect and I admire it and I'm jealous of it, but we all know there's some comedians who do seven, eight sets a night, five to six nights a week and they become these brilliant joke machines. But they very often, to me, fall into the slot you just described, which is, but wait, I don't actually remember anything about it. And it's like, because you're not, there's no, there's no intake from what's, the, from the world. This isn't based in a real life because your whole life is telling jokes. So I can marvel at your ability to construct a joke. I f almost feel like in a way that's the difference between like, like, when it's just punchline, 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 and you can't remember it, I almost feel like that's like looking at the engine of a car with the hood up. Where you're like, wow, that machine is loud and powerful and it runs well. But sometimes you got to put the hood down and actually like drive it around and be like, oh, look at the body and, and how nice it, you know, like the detailing and all that stuff. Like, I think that it ties very much into like if all you do is strengthen your ability to tell jokes you're forgetting to maybe put some gas in the tank as far as, well, what are the jokes about? Can you apply? I think one of the most masterful people to me at this right now, I said his name before, I feel like John Mulaney. That guy can write an, that dude can watch an episode of Law and Order and walk away with 17 minutes of new material about one episode of Law and Order. But then when you get underneath it all, it's like, yeah, he... Punchline, 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 funny bit, funny bit, funny bit. And it sounds like it's all just about Ice T's character. He has this bit I love, all about Ice T's character on uh, SVU. And it's like, yeah, that could just be hollow, but no, 
when you start to peel back the layers, you realize like John's a really smart guy and he's processing his entire viewpoint about life through an episode of Law and Order. It's, he walks that line so well, mm. I think as well as anybody. I think Gary Goleman, very similar, very similar. Yeah, you know? he'll go to Trader Joe's, says and there you go. brilliant jokes about it. Yeah, and, so. and even the state abbreviation bit, which we were talking yeah. about before we started recording. Like He's making fun of the, the structure of documentaries. Yes. So many things he's making fun of. Yes, and he slips, like, this is clearly a fantasy about a room full of people that did not exist. Yeah. There was never a room full of people that were like, we got to abbreviate the states, not in the fashion he's doing it. And then he slips in all these things about, oh, that's typical dot. That's typical dotty about the the sassy secretary who keeps interjecting and you realize oh there's quietly a thing there about like this like 50s dominated madman culture where the woman who has the woman never gets to actually participate like he's not it's it's not it doesn't have barbs it's not the central thing but he quietly slips in this idea of like and then there's the woman who's not allowed to be a part of it back then and it's like there's a little bit of a point uh, there, and, too, and, to hang your hat on. And there's also the omelet station guy. The like omelet the station. Oh, the omelet station clearly does not want to be there. Right. He wants to be the chef chef, not the omelet chef. Right. And he so, gets sucked in. And then you have these little points about, like, like almost a weird thing where you're like, oh, there's, like, the class structure of this guy. And there's the, this woman flirting around the edge of it. And then it's just really brilliant. And it's such a silly, absurdist bit. But there's also meat on its bones. And you also see yeah. little pieces of the real world show up in it or the real world as we think of it from decades ago. I think he said it took him overall 20 years to write that joke. It's amazing. Uh, so, okay. Um, it's such the, a good joke. <laughs> yeah, it is. Did you ever see? So I'll, I'll move on. But uh, <laughs> the, the best stand-ups are the ones who can go into any environment and figure it out, all club, college festival, rock show, etc. You address that. Yes. I'll, 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 I'll leave it. Although I'll say, if you're a college and you, you might want to hire the best college stand-up, not the best stand-up. Yeah, I think there, there's certainly truth to... Like Caratop does his thing. Yeah. And he doesn't, he's not the best. I mean, maybe he is the best stand-up ever, but he's probably not hired for every venue. He's hired for a specific type of venue. Yes, and I mean, it's definitely two-way street. A lot of these rules probably would apply to show bookers as well as comedians. Like, know the environment you're walking into for the comedian. Also know the comedian you're inviting into your environment. Both of those are very fair things to ask. But but, you're, but what you're, I feel what you're saying here is for you, you're approaching it as, for you approaching it as an artist, comedian, storyteller, you want to be good in any environment. And that's yes. the ones you respect the most yeah, and you aspire to be. 100%. Those are the people who I came up watching. I, I, I'm, it's, I've been in a very weird mindset. I'm 38 years old. I started doing shows in New York when I was 19. So it's officially half my life. And the people I always admired the most were the people who could wrangle any room and, and be the master of ceremonies while they had the mic in their hand. Be the ringmaster of the circus. Like, I will tell you when it's time to focus on all the other craziness. The people who can walk into any room and do that, I think those are the masters. And I'm not, I'm not one of them. I will very often get swallowed up if an environment blindsides me, but it's, it's the thing I am most fascinated about trying to work on. But I see the people who can do it, and I always think to myself, wow, those are 
the real deal people we should all be chasing. And, and again, in terms of learning how to learn any skill, I think it's worth not limiting yourself to saying, well, I'm just going to be the best salesman in the world, or I'm just going to be the best at shooting three pointers in the world. Right. Uh, it, 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 it helps all the other areas. If you try to get at least a little good at the ones you're uncomfortable with. Um, okay. Next one jokes aren't truly good unless they're universal. I think it's the same. Same point. Yeah. Yeah. Similar thing. If the joke that ties more into like writing and organizing your set, it's less about running the room and more about what are you putting on your album? What are you putting on your special? It has to be the stuff that plays everywhere. Has to be. Um, work for this one is very interesting because it applies to many. This is the most important one that applies to many areas of your life. Work for free until you don't have to work for free anymore. Then never work for free again. So, yeah. for instance, if someone wants to be a writer, write wherever you can. Write for a magazine. Write for a newspaper. Ghost write a book. Boom, boom, boom. Get the skill of writing, and then suddenly you're good enough. Some, uh, you're, you're, and people are asking you to do enough things. You have to start charging just to be able to say no a little bit. Yeah. People, people pay in order for you to do something you don't like. That's why they pay you. Right. So you have to, so you have to be able to be so valuable that you could say no unless the price is like super high, and then you could even take a lower price to do something you love doing. Yes, yes. Or if someone seems like they very genuinely have good intentions and not the budget, but they can yeah. give you something so you can hold your head up high. But yeah, it, and it, that ties into what we were saying before too. That's the exact moment in your career in your life when you really have hopefully learned to not be bashful about expressing that stuff. Uh, this is like two years ago, I gave a talk and this company, well-known company paid like a lot of, I, they said, what, what's your fee? And I gave a, a ridiculously high number of thinking, cause I don't like to travel and I don't like to give talks that much uh, unless I really love what I'm giving a talk at. They paid the number and I still should have said no because I went out there and I just had a miserable time and I, <laughs> they had to remind me like six months later to cash the check and it just was a dread. Um, but, uh, uh, okay, next one is uh, going up at a small slash low, going up at a small slash low key new loose show to try brand new shit is not work, it's workshopping. It's okay to do that for free. So, and you see that a lot of, for instance, this club, people will, you know, before their Conan set or whatever, or their Colbert set, they'll try stuff. They'll bring their pad up on stage. Right. They'll try stuff. Right. And it's also like you get to the point where you're getting paid for your sets. That's great. Sometimes I have stuff that I'm not sure is worthy of a, of a paying audience. So yeah, now let me go and find a show out in a neighborhood that's a little more far flung. And this show might not pay, but they're happy to have me there. And I'm happy to go to this audience and go, no, I mean, we're, if we're going to be in Ridgewood, Queens, and I'm not getting paid, then yeah, I can throw some bullshit at you and see what works and what doesn't. That's totally fair. And the audience knows that that's part of what they're getting. And now I can take it back to the paying audience and understand, okay, this is actually something I deserve to be paid for. There's, there is that line where uh, understand what you're trying to get out of it when you are setting your rates. Sometimes you got to go try the brand new stuff for no money because that is fair to an audience to not ask them to pay. Very often though that involves, yeah, if the audience isn't paying, then I can go and do it for free and kind of slam some stuff against the wall and see what sticks. 
Oh, okay. So I'll, I'll read it. So if a comic before you tells the audience they suck, like you guys suck, that comic is weak. We've addressed that also. But try starting your set like this. If you're the next person, try starting your set like this afterwards. Thank you guys for being here tonight. And thanks for giving me a little bit of your time. You will instantly feel their guards come down. They're just happy someone, specifically a mediocre comedian, is not calling them dumb for being there. But again, I like that just in general. Like, thank you for yeah. being here tonight. Time is valuable. Thanks for giving me some of it. Like, there's a million other things you could be doing. Thanks for being here. By the way, though, I think that, that saying that works best if the comic before them really treat them with disrespect. Because otherwise, let's say you're up there for five minutes. You just wasted... 40 seconds. Yeah. So you have to be careful. Well, in my opinion, you have to be careful about you're taking too much time doing the, give it up for the MC, give it up for the place, 100%. give it up for this. 100%. And that was one of Gary's things that made me realize, oh, I've, I've wasted too much time in my career. <laughs> that one that I wrote, the, I did a show in Los Angeles. I found it unbelievable. I think I was the seventh or eighth comic up on the bill. And I'm not exaggerating when I say Every single comic before me told the audience they were terrible. Every single one into the microphone. Some of these people would try two jokes and miss and go, oh, why did I pay for valet parking tonight? You guys are the worst. Why did I even do this? It happened six or seven times. And you could feel the audience going, what is this? What is this? We heard this was like a hip show. It's just people telling us we're dumbasses for coming. And I just... Not to judge LA, but I say in another one of those things, LA can be a little cocky, you know? New York can be a little cutthroat. London can be a little sad, like it can, with the material. Like, but I, I, in my head, I was just like, I'm gonna be a New Yorker about this. Like, we don't, New Yorkers don't have necessarily the luxury of telling an audience that they suck. In LA, you gotta drive your car, find a parking spot. You're there for the night, they're staying. If six comics in a row told an audience they sucked at this club, the audience would leave because there's 8 million other things to do and they can get on a subway right now and go to it. They can be, it's New York City. You can be doing something cool in 20 minutes, seven nights of the week. Like you can't just drive them out of the room. So I watched all these comics go up. You suck, you suck, you're terrible. Why did I come here? What a waste of time. And I, I just was in the back going, I'm going to be a New Yorker about this one. I just went up, I went, Hey guys, I know there's a lot of other things you could be doing tonight. I'm really psyched you're giving me some of your time. Thanks so much for coming out. And not to be cocky, I did the best on the show. Surprise, surprise, that the guy who didn't make them feel worthless got the biggest reaction. It, it was eye-opening and, and troubling and disconcerting. This one is a more specific. The hardest type of gig by far is opening for a band on an all-music bill. Oh, boy. Uh... Well, how do you deal with that, actually? It's horrible. Like, that's, that's hard. That would be an interesting challenge. Oh, I've done it. Have, have you been in that unlucky situation? No, but here's what I've done. I would say maybe similarly daunting, and I did this to challenge myself. I went on a subway. Because I Ooh. wanted to tighten my one-liners, <laughs> I went on a subway and just started doing stand-up, and then every stop I would switch cars and start again. How'd it go? It was hard. I mean, I got some people laughing, but in general... That wasn't the goal. The goal was just to to do it. Yeah. But, and sometimes people would be like, "Who? What is this guy? Like, what? It yeah. really didn't it didn't feel good at the end. Even though sometimes you would find a, a willing customer, but yeah, I feel music. I I started getting invited. People started viewing me as like a hip Brooklyn dude. 
And then bands started inviting me to do their shows. And I was like, oh, this is cool. This is going to like brand me as a guy who's like part of this scene. You think about music though, it's like loud. It starts with somebody being like, and everyone knows it starts. You can talk during the songs. You can shout to your friends. People are getting drinks in between every song, talking to the bartenders. And then you got to go off and be like, hey, everybody. Uh, so, everybody uh, be quiet. Yeah, here's my bit about this thing. And it's just talking and yelling and they're conditioned to responding to loud noises. And oh my my, and I say at the top of the, these things, I, I don't really think of these as rules for everybody. It's just my opinions. These are my opinions that I've learned to stem over the years. My opinion, opening at a rock show, ooh, that's the hardest one. You could imagine someone like uh, Sam Kinison might be able to handle it. There you go, like screaming at the audience and yeah, a, a low energy dude with glasses who uh, rambles about how sad he is. <laughs> a little bit harder to bring that room over to my side. So so again this next one is we've talked about but it also applies so much to real to every aspect of life. When you, when you don't take enough time to live a real life, your jokes start to feel stale and thin. Sometimes the best joke writers demonstrate an insane amount of skill at writing and telling a joke, but the joke isn't about anything since they don't go and live life. Um, and you say you have the opposite problem, too much bouncing around life, not enough discipline in writing. Yeah. I'll leave that one to the side. But <laughs> I, 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 I think it's true though. I think, um, and it's the same thing with writing. Like I see all these, uh, let's say professors write novels about professors. Yeah. And it's like kind of not interesting. And yeah. those, they sell 2000 copies. They win a Pulitzer prize because professors are judging those and that's yeah. it. Yeah. It's, uh, I think it's true. And I also think when you're trying to get hired at jobs, it can often be the difference maker, right? Like if you're trying to hire, like uh, I'm trying to hire a PR person, I'm probably going to hire the one who in that meeting, if it comes down to the one person who's like, I can tell you everything about PR and another person who I can tell you everything about PR and also connect with you because we like similar music or can connect with you because, oh, you went to a vacation in that place. I went there 10 years ago. Did you check this thing out? Like being a worldly person who has a sense of the bigger picture of what's out there and how people are can take you far in, I think, many areas of life. Uh, let's see. I'm gonna I'm gonna go through these. Jay, the audio engineer, just gave me the the ten minute sign. Someone coming in the room. Um, we pushed it to the goddamn limits. Sometimes you won't sell tickets on the road. They'll give away a ton of tickets. <laughs> it's called papering the room. Those shows can be fun because if you get them on your side, you know you've appealed to them more than the mozzarella sticks. Simple. I think that one explains itself. Yeah. I mean, the reason I I I am interested in that one. So we're doing, we're taking this podcast slash a little bit of comedy on the road. And I was just curious if you had road advice. Yeah, I think, I think that I always brace myself. I just did the Southeast. I just did seven or eight cities in the Southeast. And it was like the first three, every show sold out. Did three cities, six shows, right? Six shows, seven shows spread between them. All sold out. I was like, great. Went back out a weekend, took a week off, went back out. It's like, well, now I'm in Huntsville, Alabama. The room seat's 300. There's 100 people here. It doesn't feel great. It's, I sold 100 tickets in Huntsville. I've never been to Huntsville before. It's respectable, but I'm still seeing those 200 empty seats, and there's only 100 people here. I bet some of them got that last-minute email, hey, come see a free show because club needs to make that money back. They gave me a guarantee, and they need to sell some potato skins to make sure they don't lose money. So 
I know some of these people don't know me. And that can be really hard on the ego, can be really daunting, can be a little awkward to look a club manager in the eye and be like, oh, we only sold how many tickets? But I do think if you always treat them with respect and respect the club, they return it. And uh, if those audience members come, sometimes those audience members come to you and go, I literally have never heard of you before tonight, but I really liked it. I'm going to go follow you on Twitter. It's like, that's victory. Victory is mine. The people who didn't know about me, okay, they're finding me just through this. Great, great, great. It has some value, but it can be hard. And those are very often, like for me, I know that I play well in like the cities that have their own version of Brooklyn. So like Austin, Texas. Oh yeah, I'll go do great in Austin. But when you send me to uh, Syracuse, it's more of an uphill climb. It's a little bit different culturally. But I guess you could view it as a challenge. This yeah. is how you get better at that. Yeah, but it's, it's, uh, it, it's an ego bruiser for sure. This is really interesting because this applies to basically every Facebook thread on the planet right now. Comedians are allowed to say whatever they want, but comedians forget that the other side of that is that audiences are allowed to be offended. So yeah. too often people say, I can say this free speech, but people, it's free speech to be offended too. Yeah, it's like it's also like, I agree. Yeah, we gotta be able to say whatever we want, but I feel like that's not, that doesn't mean you can go and you're not allowed to react. It means that you're allowed to go, I'm willing to deal with the negative reaction, right? Like Lenny Bruce got arrested. He got arrested. He said whatever he wanted, but he got arrested and he fought hard. And there's, you know, you hear all the stories that it helped drive him into the drug addiction that killed him. Like there were severe consequences, but he watched his old stuff, listened to his old stuff. Of course people are allowed to react to that, right? Like, I think I see a lot of comedians and they say, um, they might say kind of p potentially insensitive stuff, which they're allowed to do. And they point out, this is a comedy club. If you can't say something here, you know, obviously they don't, it's a comedy club. They're making jokes. They don't necessarily, it's not like they're preaching gospel. It's not a, you know, a political pundit or right, a religious place. Right. This is a safe place for them to say what they want, but they do get up. I've seen them sometimes get upset when the audience will react negatively because who knows what the history of that audience member is. And you kind of have to, it's again, like what you were yeah. saying, you have to kind of play to the audience a little bit and, and see, see what works best. I do think so. And I think it's like, Hey, just deal with them. If they get pissed, like they're, if they get pissed, cause you pissed them off. And you said something that you thought might piss them off. You can't get mad at them. Like I, you can't get mad at them. And you don't get mad at a dog for barking. Like don't get mad at an audience member who's offended by you saying something offensive. And I think the real shame is that sometimes we're so quick to have that knee jerk reaction of like, I'm allowed to say that. Where if you can leave the ego out of it, it's like maybe the point's not landing the way you want it to. Maybe you got to mm -hmm. nudge the writing somewhere because maybe you actually have a point that's really noble or really has got a good heart. Maybe it's missing and maybe you need to listen and, and adjust that, adjust the wording or adjust the pacing or the timing or whatever because there might be a way to get this thing to land where no one's offended. Or I like how, I, I, did you see Gerard Carmichael's special eight? Um, Bro, Bro Burnham directed it. Yeah, I, I, did. I think I've watched all of Gerard's. So, so, so there's one point where he's saying something about climate change and someone in a second tier of the audience um, 
yells at him. We can't hear what she yells, but it's something negative. And he, I like how he's he smiled at her. Like he he has, he has this you know nice smile. He smiled at her, and he's like, oh no no no, did I did I lose you on that? Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. I'm gonna win you back. Trust me, I'm gonna win you back. And he, and you can see throughout the thing, he's kind of keeping his eye. And then finally, he sees her laughing. He's like, see, I won you back on that one. And so it was a way to kind of yeah be inclusive with her even though yeah. she disagreed with him on that point yeah not i'm mad at you because i lost you now it's a fun game to see if i can get you back i think that's i think gerard is particularly good he's one of my favorites the past few years because he is particularly good at making the first sentence of a bit something that is society that society has declared unlikable and then chipping away he had a he has a whole bit about shouldn't Jay-Z be allowed to cheat? He's yeah, Jay-Z. Yeah. He's cool and he's rich. Like, if anybody's allowed to get a pass, there's not the most, uh, in the current political climate, I don't know if that's the thing people want to hear right but now. But he reverses it by saying, yeah. if he was married to Beyonce, and no. he acts out completely like, if he's like a little jealous or insecure about what Beyonce's up to, and she's like, shut up. He's like, okay. You know, he, he, he kind of yeah. reverses it on himself. I think he's one of the best at kind of digging an intentional ditch at the top of a bit that he then has to climb out of. This one, I have, unfortunately, I have to skip to, through all of your great points to the end. By the way, if you want to find this article, you know, search Chris Gethard on Medium. You'll find this article instantly. It's, and it's, uh, it's called My Personal Opinions Regarding What I Do. Um, and before we get to the last one, I'll just mention career suicide, the, the Chris Gethard show, you can find on Amazon lose. Well, uh, you can find on Amazon as well. Uh, uh, where else what, you, you perform all over New York, but yeah. where else do you want people to look for you? I'm on all the social media. I'm not going to be out much cause I'm having the kids. So um, all your standard Instagrams and whatnot, I'm out there. You can find him it's in Brooklyn good. wandering around with a stroller and his kid. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> You have this. You have this uh, line, which I thought is really good, particularly in terms of storytelling. Don't act like a comedian; act like yourself. Yeah. And this one, I think, is extremely important. I'm sure you see it all the time. That that I, I feel like that's one of. I feel like when you see someone go from good to really good or great, that to me is often the turn. When you're like, oh, you were always a good writer, but now I'm really getting a sense of who you are. And that's what makes me kind of wake up and be like, oh, I've seen your set before and I liked it. And now I'm kind of like, oh man, all right, I got to follow it. Like I often feel like the turn is that sense of self that shows up on stage. So, so, so it seems hard to me, right? You, you, you go, first off, you go to a comedy club, whether it's a, you know, a professional lineup or an open mic and everyone is there to be a stand-up comedian. Mm-hmm. And the bookers are there to see stand-up comedians make the crowd laugh. And 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 so there's this enormous emphasis to be a comedian. People don't know what it means to be themselves. And I'll just give you an example from my own experience. I've been giving talks for 20 years where people laugh. I write books where people laugh. I do podcasts sometimes where if I go on other people's podcasts, they're laughing. But then when you get to a comedy club, there's this enormous emphasis to do, oh, you got to fit the beat, beat, beat of a comedian. Right. I have these incredibly insane stories, story after story after story, which is why I've built an audience. And, but it's hard to make that transition. It's not hard for me in public speaking or writing. It's hard in comedy to make that transition from 
building that skill to acting like yourself. Yeah, it's hard. It's one of the hardest things. I think it's also because we emulate our heroes more than I think a lot of other art forms. And then what you'll see, I think, is you'll see a lot of people if it's like, I want to be a club comedian. And then all of a sudden it's like they're wearing a leather jacket on stage because in their mind, this is like the old like Greg Giraldo era, you know, like that whole crew of like, I want to be someone who's like an unapologetic, brash truth teller. So I'm going to dress like those guys used to, or like you'll see, I want to do some like smart, thoughtful, quirky, alti-political stuff. So I'm going to have my notebook, like Janine Garofalo always has her notebook. I'm going to do that. That's like, it's like, well, no, that's those people's thing. And at a certain point, abandon that and be you. And then you're not cut from the same cloth as anyone else. You are a truly unique person. And that makes you very memorable to bookers and audiences and other comedians when they get that sense. One of the people I love the most the past few years is Tig Notaro. Mm. Every time I see Tig perform, I'm like, there's no one else like Tig in this entire world. The jokes are great. The personality's great. The controlling the room is great. And I think one of the main things I always walk away just going like, that's a person being themselves to a very true degree. And I'm blown away by it. Well, I think we can easily say there's no one else in the world like Chris Gethard when you Thank do your you. comedy. And it's very unique, very different. You've got the storytelling, the comedy, the intense reality of depression and the anxiety you've experienced throughout. Uh, it's just a pleasure to be a fan of all of it. So thank you for coming on the, oh, the podcast. It was a Thanks joy. for sticking around. I usually don't want to keep no, you for please. two hours. I happy know you're, to be here. You have a busy life. Thanks for letting me uh, act, ramble like a know-it-all and act like I actually know what I'm talking but about. Believe me, I did you a favor. Sometimes <laughs> you need a break when I I've have kids. Sometimes it's like good to get out of the house a little bit while family things are, are happening. I hear you. <laughs> happy for the chance. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. Good time. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.